thought maybe I'd begin by telling a story. And um, since I'm telling it, it it's a history. <laughs> I'm not going to tell the whole story of the, of the Houston Zen Center. Um, when, I, when I first came here, it wasn't called the Houston Zen Center, it was called the Houston Zen Community. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to not talk about that and move on to the beginning of a, of a year called, some people call it, 2020. And I thought, that's a nice number for a year. <laughs> and at the beginning of that year, I participated in an in intensive practice at Green Dragon Zen Temple at Green Gulch Farm, uh, our yearly intensive we have there. And that went really well. I and other people in America were hearing about an epidemic in China of a terrible virus and that it was spreading to Europe. But in America, we weren't doing anything that I noticed, just sitting there watching it come. But it hadn't come yet, so it was happy days. And the intensive ended, and then after the intensive, I went to a place called Houston and did a lovely retreat with you. Some of you remember that lovely retreat? Everything went quite nicely, and again, happy days. <laughs> I mean, you know, in terms of the virus, it hadn't hit. So I went back to Green Dragon Zen Temple, and then a, couple, a few days later, Reverend Johnson came to visit. And we started a practice period. And he was serving as head monk. And things were going really well. <laughs> <laughs> the practice period was going really well. Everybody was really healthy. And then it hit. And we had to close the practice period down. We couldn't go in the zendo anymore and sit together. So for our practice, that was really a a death. And Royce couldn't be too so anymore, had, had to leave. And so then that started the period where we couldn't go in the Zendo. Month after month, we couldn't go in the Zendo. We couldn't sit together, we couldn't practice together, we couldn't study together. 
And then came uh, 2021, and after a while, we felt like we could go back in the Zendo and practice together, and also meet together. First with masks on, and the doors open. It was really cold <laughs> in the winter. Doors open and masks on, but we were together again. We're practicing together again. And also, um, we also gave Zoom talks from Green Gulch. And every time I gave one of those talks, I just felt like so much suffering. How can I, I have to start every, every talk with acknowledging so much suffering. Not just having the pandemic, but taking care of people who have the pandemic. And yeah, so much suffering in so many ways. And uh, yeah, so then after a while, we felt like we could take our masks off in the Zendo. We kept them on when we chanted like we just, just did here. And we're still uh, wearing masks when we chant. But otherwise, we're sitting in the Zendo uh, without masks. We haven't yet opened up at Green Gulch um, to let people come in. And, uh, and enter our public buildings, but last summer it was getting really close to opening up, just a little while ago. And uh, at this little temple I have called No Abode, we had our first sitting in years where we could actually all be together without masks. And it was a lovely day. Everybody was so happy to be back together. And then a couple of days later, Delta virus. So since July, that retreat was, that sitting was on my birthday. So since my birthday, we closed the temple again. And now maybe in December, we'll be able to have an in-person event again. It's been very hard for community practice. Last January, and right in the middle of the COVID, uh, we offered a, a great assembly at Green Gulch online. Two or three hundred, three or four hundred people actually signed up. A wonderful great assembly for three weeks. It was, you know, studying the Lotus Sutra. And then again, since that time, I, I felt like more and more I'm called to pay attention to the practice of compassion. And it's not just the pandemic, it's all kinds of other forms of humans being cruel to each other and disrespectful of each other, hurting each other, 
fighting with each other, not respecting each other, being harmed by being harmed by other beings and maybe even harming other beings. So much of that that I really felt drawn to concentrate on compassion. And concentrating on compassion also, I often think that when I first was attracted to Zen people and Zen behavior that I read about, I didn't have the word compassion in my consciousness. I just was deeply touched by the behavior of these people I read about. Now I see that they were being compassionate, but the word compassion was in almost none of the stories. You know, I didn't notice the word compassion in the stories. And then I heard about Zen training, and I didn't hear the word compassion. Maybe some other people did, but I didn't hear it. I heard Zazen, but I didn't say, you know, Zazen, that is to say compassion. But uh, today I, I'm here to say Zazen is compassion. That's what Zazen is. It's, comp- it's great compassion. It's Buddhist compassion. That is our practice. But I didn't have that concept when I first started practicing, I had again the concept of these people are are the way people. Not so. I'm not going to say these people are the way people should be. These people are the way I want to be. These people are showing the tr- true way of life, and I didn't think these are compassionate people. I just want to be like those people, whatever you call them. And they were called Zen people. And then there was a training to become like those people. The training was called Zazen. But again, now, today I say, I saw compassionate people who were showing the life of compassion. And you have to train to be the life of compassion fully. And the training, again, was called Zazen. And all those people did the same training program. So I thought, well, I'll try it. So I've been trying it. In the Zendo, as you, many of you know, in traditional Zen temples, in the Zendo is Manjushri Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva of great wisdom is enshrined there. Of course, we practice wisdom. 
honor and worship wisdom. And, we, and Zazen is also wisdom. And the Buddha hall, usually it's Buddha. But where's Avalokiteshvara? Avalokiteshvara, where's the Bodhisattva compassion? The Bodhisattva compassion is around the temple too, all around the temple. In this Zendo, instead of Manjushri, there's a statue of a Bodhisattva of great compassion. In Sanskrit, they call this Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. In Tibetan, Chenrezig. In Chinese, Guanyin. In Japanese, Kanan. the Guan or the Khan or the Avalokita uh, means the one who looks down upon the world on the Loki the one who looks down on the world who contemplates the world and is self-existent Ishvara is free the liberated being who watching the world of suffering. That being is liberated and so they're not watching the world of suffering because they're being forced to. Their freedom naturally attends to the world of beings who are not completely free. Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, Guan Yin, Guan means to contemplate. Yin means the sound or the cries, to contemplate. And so when you contemplate sounds often you say you're listening. But that character also means to contemplate wisely. And Kanan means also to contemplate or regard the cries of all beings. That's the Bodhisattva. That you have a statue of here. But again, uh, starting to practice Zen in the 60s <coughs> in California, we didn't talk about compassion much or people were talking about it, I didn't hear them. We talked about zazen, sitting, awakening, enlightenment. So these days I feel we need to balance our focus on just sitting with the awareness that just sitting is wisdom, just sitting is the treasury of true Dharma eyes. Just sitting is unsurpassed, complete, perfect enlightenment. And that is great compassion. Also, there's another name for it, which is, I think, needs to be lifted up. We need to include that of mindfulness that are, when you're sitting, 
your sitting is devoted to great compassion. This is the way the Buddhas sit. Their sitting is devoted to great compassion. And there's so many voices and so much suffering. And we're learning to be more consistently mindful of listening to all suffering beings. Soto Zen temples in the main hall. There's a central altar and then there's two side altars. And one of the side altars has a sculpture of the protective deity of the Soto school, whose name is Daigen Shuri Bodhisattva, which means great protector of the practice principle, bodhisattva. And that figure looks like a Chinese official going like this. You know, as in, not saluting so much, but kind of like, hmm, how are things out there? Now, this figure is a protective deity. What do you call it? It's a maritime protective deity. It's a deity that watches over the ships and the sailors of China. And Dogen saw that figure when he was in China. And on his way back to Japan, his ship had a really rough time. And he saw that deity on the prow, on the bow of the ship, protecting him and the other people to bring the Dharma back to Japan. So then he had that deity put into the Japanese Zen temples to protect the practice. And on the other side of the altar is Bodhidharma. Are you all familiar with that name, Bodhidharma? Anybody not? Bodhidharma, a close friend of yours? <laughs> so we don't, I don't know who Bodhidharma is. And I also don't know who Avalokiteshvara is. But I imagine that Avalokiteshvara, although I don't know who Avalokiteshvara is, I imagine Avalokiteshvara is present everywhere. And so, same for Bodhidharma. We have a story about Bodhidharma that he was from India and he traveled to China. And uh, somehow he had a, a meeting with the emperor 
of China, or the emperor of the Liang dynasty, which was in the south. Somehow he got a, an audience with the emperor, and the emperor also got an audience with Bodhidharma. This emperor was a historical figure and a great student of Buddhism and a great patron of Buddhism. And so Bodhidharma met him and uh, in the interview, uh, the emperor kind of referring to all these amazing meritorious acts that he had offered to the world of supporting Buddhism. And he's, and um, yeah, the emperor says, well, how much merit do I get? And Bodhidharma said, no merit. Then the emperor said, well, what's the highest meaning of the holy truths, the Four Noble Truths? And Bodhidharma said, no holy. Vast emptiness, no holy. What's the highest meaning of the Four Noble Truths? Vast emptiness. What's the, what's the highest meaning of the, of the Four Noble Truths? You can't apprehend the highest meaning. It's vast, like space. The emperor says, who is this facing me? And Bodhidharma said, don't know. Uh, the actual Chinese says, not, and has a character for consciousness, which could be translated as no, but it's actually, it is the character for consciousness rather than another character, which is often means to know. What is, what is facing me? It's, it's not consciousness. What is it? It's, you know, that's all I said, it's not consciousness, or, or usually translated as don't know. And the office also sometimes translated, I don't know. But it just says, don't know, or don't consciousness, not consciousness. That's who's facing the emperor. Something that's not consciousness. What is it? Well, I say, what's facing him is great compassion, which pervades all consciousnesses. Each of us has a consciousness, each moment. Each moment we have a consciousness, which is a limited realm of cognitive awareness. Where there's a self. We have that every moment. Great compassion is not that. But great compassion pervades it. And that consciousness, which each of us has each moment, each moment of our consciousness is what great compassion embraces intimately. Great compassion is in solidarity with our limited cognitive self-centeredness. And that was that was facing the emperor. 
story says Bodhidharma left and crossed the Yangtze River and <clears throat> went north. And uh, after he left, the emperor asked the court, his court <coughs> Buddhist teacher, who was that masked man? <laughs> And the emperor said, that was Avalokiteshvara. The teacher could see that was Avalokiteshvara. And I heard, I've heard that story and told that story many times. But the first several times I heard it, I did not, it didn't really strike me to my core that Bodhidharma is Avalokiteshvara. The founder of the Zen school is Avalokiteshvara. Who has paths like Manjushri and Samantabhadra and Maitreya and the Buddha. But the founder is great compassion. Great Compassion is the founder of the school, and it is the school. Great Compassion is the main cause of Buddhahood. And it is the result of Buddhahood. I'm praising Great Compassion. I've been doing that now. For most of this 2021 and I will continue to the end of 2021 and after that no one knows what will happen but I pray that I continue to remember great compassion moment by moment with every moment of my, my own awareness and every moment of each person I meet, that I remember great compassion for this being and his suffering and great compassion for all beings, all beings, even those who are really cruel and disrespectful and have been abused so they're frightened and angry and etc. They too are calling for Avalokiteshvara. And it's very difficult to remember that. That's why we have to train to remember it. Some time ago, Abbot Snowhut invited me to come and do another retreat here, and um, I agreed. And then things, one thing led to another, and I had a big surgery on the left knee. And that surgery was six weeks ago, and. Um, here I am, and some of the people 
at Green Gulch when they heard I was coming to do a session. They said, cuckoo. <laughs> so I said, uh, and my daughter says, Daddy, I said, I'm just going to go and tell them that I'm here with you. I'm here with you, and I'll be here with you for this retreat. But I don't know, I'm not, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. I have not, since the operation, I've been not going to the Zendo. The, the process, whatever it is, is going on which I think is healing, takes a, a lot of energy to address, you know, the trauma uh, to this part of my body. And uh, it's just amazing how much rest I need. So I, I'm here, I'll be with you, but I don't know how I'll be with you. And so I might be um, a, a little different than you're used to me being. But please support me, and uh, and with your help, I think I can be with you, and I will be with you. And with my help, you can be here too. So let's do this retreat. Let's focus on this amazing thing called Buddhist compassion, which is great compassion, which is not compassion for a few people, or even a lot of people, is compassion for every people and every animal, everything, all phenomena. What time is it? Let me just briefly say, I start when I, the first few words I say are going to be brief. There's two things I want to start out talking to you about. Is one is how do you generate great compassion? I mean, part of it is is to want it. Part of it is to realize that. The beings we really want to be like are compassionate ones. But then how do we... And that helps a lot. That's where it comes from. But then there's certain kinds of trainings which help us generate. And there's two I'd like to start talking to you about. One is just to contemplate the suffering. Listen to it. Look at it. Review how people, how beings are being tortured in this world. Review how they're being tortured. Review how they feel being tortured. Review their torture to contemplate it. And it's very painful to contemplate it for most of us. Some people don't have much trouble contemplating it because they're being tortured. And so, but even then, it's hard to stay alert when you're being tortured. Yeah. 
Like somebody told me just recently that she went to a scene of an accident where her husband was injured and she couldn't think of anything. It, the, the pain was so intense she couldn't, she couldn't think of anything. She couldn't think of license plate numbers or names of policemen or whatever. Sometimes the pain is so intense we can barely face it. But we can easily sometimes ignore it. And we have, most of us, been ignoring the suffering of this world. Like we just chanted, in through our through our ancient evil karma of ignoring suffering, that ignorance has become a big obstacle to practicing compassion. So now it's it's being we're being called to look at what we've been ignoring, to look into the areas of suffering that we've been ignoring. And it will be painful to look at our ignorance, to look at our habits of turning away from suffering. It will be painful, but it will be medicine if we learn how to do it right. And not looking causes much greater pain. So first, we, we, we meditate on the suffering of beings. That's the first part. second part is to imagine some way to deeply appreciate the preciousness and deeply cherish all life, even the life of people who are our enemies and say they are, and also cherish those who don't care about us and we don't care about them. And of course, cherish those we do like. We do appreciate cherish those who have been kind to us, not miss how important they are. So that's another practice to look at. These practices will help us generate great compassion. And I would also then like to look at different kinds of compassion. So great compassion is Buddha's compassion, but then there's many other kinds of compassion, which are compassion which you have felt individually at various points in your life. You felt compassion here, compassion there. You felt compassion for some people, sometimes. All those little compassions are embraced by Buddhist compassion. But it's good to understand that they're little compassions and, um, be, and be compassionate to them, but also not get stuck in them, not, not be limited by limited compassion, by uh, working with it in the proper way. So I'd like to respectfully look that's, you know, some different types of compassion. 
because they're part of the landscape of developing Buddhist compassion. So uh, that seemed like maybe that was somewhat clear, a kind of an outline of what I want to discuss with you. Another way to put it is, I want to examine compassion. I want to explore it. I want to investigate it. I want to experiment with it. With you. In other words, I do not want to practice compassion in a way where my practice is unexamined. I want to do it examined, questioned, called into account compassion. So now I think my introduction maybe is going on long enough. I wouldn't say it's complete, but just maybe long enough. Anything you want to say before we conclude this session? Yes, yes. Yes, Leo? Uh, first, thanks, Roshi. Welcome to Texas. Thank you. Nice to see you. You said to me once that practice in the city is compassion practice. Practice in the country is wisdom practice. What did you mean by that? And um, I guess maybe what you're suggesting now is they're actually interchangeable, maybe even the same thing. Well, I can imagine, I, I, I'm not surprised that I said that. Um, <laughs> but I, I would say, by country practice, I kind of mean also monastic practice. Um, so I think you can develop certain things in the monastery or in the country, away from the city. Like, you can deepen the wisdom, I think, in some ways. Um, uh, it's... The, the, country, the country environment, the silence of the country is very conducive to concentration and samadhi, which are necessary for wisdom. So you can develop those a little easier out in the country if you don't have to get in your car every day and drive around and so on. Driving cars is so dualistic. And, and, uh, and uh, what do you call it? Too? Agitating. So to take a break from certain activities, you can concentrate on concentration and wisdom in the country, in the monastery. But the city is such a great opportunity to develop compassion. And sometimes in the country, people might, you know, forget about all the suffering people in the city. So it's good to go there. And, oh, you want to look at all these sad, suffering people? Yeah. So city does, in a sense, offer something that the country doesn't and vice versa. And, but what we want to do is have compassion that is constant and all-pervading, but still sometimes we do focus maybe on uh, concentration and wisdom without, without mentioning compassion maybe, but we can't, if we forget it, our, our concentration won't be deep. So Buddhist compassion is Buddhist wisdom. 
Yes. I was uh, feeling a lot of compassion, and I was thinking of it, um, I was enjoying the feeling of compassion, and I'll say why. And then um, I, when you used the word big and little compassion, I realized it was actually a little compassion. So my question is, um, I don't know, expanding one's capacity for compassion is, is, is a challenge, as well as expanding one's capacity for suffering. Because I was looking at this little table, the read table that Dave Johnson made, and so he was probably here in the room, and he'll be coming today, his wife is bringing him, so he'll be in a wheelchair, the Parkinson's is very advanced, ooh, I feel teary. So I was feeling compassion for all the wonderful things Dave Johnson has done for Houston Zen community, really, you know, full of compassion. And it is a little compassion. Yeah. So how do we grow that yeah. capacity? Yeah. One wants to turn away from compassion, too. Well, yeah, so that's what I like to look at, is to examine how so-called little compassion what's the problems with little compassion and how is it little as compared to some other kinds so you look at somebody who is very dear to you and who's suffering and you feel com- you, you feel compassion you feel it deeply touches you but in that compassion the limited part is that um, maybe at that moment you're not remembering that this person is also an illusion at that moment, you're just you're deeply touched by the illusion of the sweet person who's suffering. That, but you're not thinking, oh, that's an illusion. That's my view of it. Somebody else thinks he's a white man and hates it. He's a difficult guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but even he's a difficult guy. Again, that's that's an illusion. But he's not this or that. None of us are. So that's part of what I have to look at it, is what, what is it about, what do we mean by this first kind of compassion? And what are its, what are its strong points and what are its limitations? And then what's, what's the other kind where we start to become still practicing compassion, but bringing dharma more into it more? So we can feel, and I, I see this all the time, people feel they're just so compassionate towards, well, like babies, and puppies and, and people who are sick they're so compassionate it's so touching and they think they know who that person is they think the person is what they think the person is so it's, it's deeply moving but it's also it's, it's called sentimental compassion and that kind of compassion although it's deeply moving uh, it has the What's the word? The drawback or the, it's what do you call it? It's at risk of turning into burnout. So Buddha's great compassion doesn't burn out. And, it, and Buddha's compassion embraces all the people's small compassions which are at risk of burning out. So if, we're not, if we don't understand small-scale compassion, we might actually abandon the very beings we're devoted to because of our lack of examination of what we think they are. But it doesn't mean you stop seeing the illusion. It's just you 
see it and remember it. And it's, it's still very precious and touching, but you're not, you're not caught by the illusion in, in, as you develop. It's developed understanding of compassion. It, 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 it grows through understanding and study. That's why I like to study with you compassion during this retreat and beyond. But not excluding any of the compassions that any of us ever feel. But just realize, is there some ignorance of the reality of the being that you're devoted to? And there often is. But let's look at that ignorance compassionately. Let's compassionately examine our limited um, view of other people, which means our limited compassion. It's okay with me if nobody else has a question at this time. Uh, Louise? First retreat. Um, the speaker's seat was back on that side at that time. I remember Dave being kind of way back here by the windows and standing up in his his scrubs, his green scrubs, and you know, being having a very strong voice <laughs> and uh, yeah, beautiful, powerful voice uh, kind of yelling at, at the speaker. <laughs> kind of yelling at me. <laughs> but that was his love for me. <laughs> and Rick, gave, Rick talked to him about that. <laughs> I was his roommate. Oh yeah, great. He used that voice frequently for a silent retreat. It, it wasn't silent. <laughs> uh, we should also remember the uh, illusionary caretaker that will be coming with Dave with our compassion. Yeah, the one. How many kinds of compassion does Luan have? <laughs> also, in the early, in the first retreat I did here. Margaret Austin Center. Um, I, you know, I just came and they said they asked me to do a retreat and they told me it's going to be a silent retreat. I didn't say, "You want me to do a retreat?" Well, the retreat should be silent. I didn't say that. <laughs> I was told they wanted me to lead a silent retreat. I said, "Okay." So then I came here and. Uh, <laughs> And I went into the kitchen, and it was like 
It was a party. <laughs> and one of the leaders was Dave. And people were like really talking it up. Very chatty. It was a very, very chatty silent retreat. <laughs> especially in the kitchen, but all over the place. Not in the Zendo. Zendo people were quiet, but all over the place people were very, you know, and I thought, I thought, you know, I thought, these people haven't seen each other for a while, and they're so happy to see each other. They love each other so much, they're just, they just want to express their love, and they did. You know, Southern hospitality, left and right. <laughs> it was lovely. But it, I didn't really think it was a silent retreat, it was more like a love retreat. <laughs> Which reminds me that I didn't talk to Katagiri Roshi about this, but I heard that his favorite TV show was Love Boat. <laughs> <laughs> I never watched it, but I heard that. Anyway, I think I really felt like the people in the Houston Zen community really loved each other, and I, I just, I just observed them uh, loving each other and being very chatty. Hmm. And then I also observed over the 25 years that the retreats quieted down. And I thought, I think they've learned over the years that they can express their love without talking. And they can feel love from others in silence. That's, that's one thing I thought. I don't know if that's true. But, but the, uh, it's not true. No, it's something I thought. Jay went bust. So we got quieter. I think we're, we meet together more often. Yeah. Instead of once a year. That's my story. But that's another story. That's her story. <laughs> so you've heard her story and his story. <laughs> And it seems kind of unfair that we don't have her story books, just his story books. Doesn't it? We should have her story books, shouldn't we? Anyway, I am listening to, I'm, what part of my compassion practice is to listen to her story. I'm listening to a lot of, from my perspective, young women telling stories. They're educating me about the suffering in this country. And, the, and these books that I'm listening to, I'm listening to, are read by professional actresses. And their voices are so lovely. The, the author's words are so lovely. And the reader's voices are so lovely. So it's, what do you call it? A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So these beautiful voices are giving me this really bitter medicine, which I need. I need a little bit of it every day. And my experience with Chinese herbs is that when I first started taking them, they were super bitter. But after a while, they started to taste like Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you every day maybe we need some bitterness but maybe not just bitter
but some bitterness we need to be healthy. So I'm listening to, to bitter stories of our wonderful country that has so much suffering. This is part of my compassion practice, is to listen to these cries, to, these, to her story, to her stories. Histories, herstories. Yeah, it's part of my practice. And, and it's part of traditional Buddhist bodhisattva practice is to listen to the suffering of the world. Yes? The root of the word history is histor, which is witness. It means to witness. Yes. And also um, be open to expanding what you're listening to. So you don't don't just listen to a small band. Try to find gradually where haven't you been listening? And that sometimes it's hard to find, but ask your friends to help you. And your friends could usually I think it'd be good for you to listen to that. But do you listen to her? Listen to them. It's a big job to listen to everybody. But our vow, which we'll soon chant, is to listen to everybody. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to listen to them. Okay? <laughs>